Welcome to Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? Ing Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. We're joined today by Dr. Tobin Miller-Shearer, Professor of History and Director of African American Studies at the University of Montana. My colleagues and I for years now have noted that as we listen to members of the white community talk about racism, if they talk about it at all, they focus on it as an individual phenomenon. So have I said a bad, uh, a racially offensive term? Do I have friends across racial lines? Am I a member of a, a white nationalist group? But when we, we listen to members of the BIPOC community, that is the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color communities, talk about racism, there we hear the conversation paying attention to those systemic issues. So how is the healthcare system treating that community? Criminal justice system, transportation, economics, real estate, you name it. So in essence, we see these communities talking past each other with one group mostly talking about racism, but they talk about it at all in individual terms, and then the BIPOC community talking about it in systemic terms. Dr. Miller Shearer will be sharing more with us about his work in racial justice training across institutional spaces, both in academia and the church. Welcome back, friends, to Ing Podcast. I'm excited today to have some time to talk with Dr. Tobin Miller-Shearer, Professor of History and Director of African American Studies at the University of Montana. Dr. Shearer is somewhat unique in that he's centered a significant portion of his academic study on the relationship between people of different racial identities, specifically within Mennonite and Anabaptist communities. And I think um, that intersection there and also the intersection of urban and rural makes him have a unique voice to offer a culture today that is struggling with some of these dynamics, but even more so within uh, those of us who come from the Peace Church tradition. You're also a person who has co-founded and been one of the core trainers of the Damascus Road Program, which is an anti-racism process uh, consultation and training program that trains faith-based colleges and universities and mission agencies on how to um, work progressively at anti-racist action. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on a number of things like that in our conversation today, but I'm guessing, uh, Tobin, that you have far more to you than just those academic <laughs> uh, things on your resume. How is it that you introduce yourself in conversation today? Well, I often start by saying that I want people to know that I am a child of God, that I am Cheryl's life partner, Dylan and Zachary's father, and that I am the son of John and Vell. I think sort of grounding who I am in my faith tradition and in my family is the place I start. But um, much of what you described is has been who I am and how I have invested my life's energies for the last 30 years. Um, I have been focused on the work of dismantling racism, whether in the church, uh, nonprofits that I've been engaged with, or the academy for that stretch of time. And um, I found it very fulfilling work, challenging work, at yeah. times uh, exhausting work, but I've been privileged to be engaged in that for uh, yeah a chunk of time. I'm always fascinated to learn 
where our passions may have come from, you describe the work that you have done as as difficult work, and uh, and that's true. Uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement that we are going through right now, no better example of the the challenges, the complicated relationship, especially in this country that we have with race. Um, can you point back to a point in your early life where you felt this compulsion to to focus on this as an area that you were interested in or wanted more education in or perhaps wanted to be working in someday? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really comes out of a crisis experience that I encountered during the first several months of fulfilling a Mennonite Central Committee voluntary service term in New Orleans. Hmm. My wife and I traveled to that city to work with the service unit there in spring of 1987 after we'd graduated from Eastern Mennonite University. And in those first number of months, half of my time was working with a program for ex-offenders and homeless men run by an African-American man by the name of Don Guyton. I've written about this story um, in numerous places, but essentially what it boiled down to is I really had a hard time accepting a black man as my boss. Mm. And out of that experience of struggling with that, I eventually after only about two months left that assignment and that started a pathway of trying to figure out what in the world had just happened. I I thought of myself as a good person that I was on the right side of race issues, but I I couldn't handle it. And that started me seeking out good mentors New Orleans is a very rich anti-racist community. We got connected with an organization called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. I started doing a lot of writing about it, trying to explore that. And in particular, some of my mentors, after we'd been working there for a number of years, said, you know, we're happy to have you here working with us, but you really need to go and work with your own community on issues of Mm -hmm. racism. Mm -hmm. And that sort of set me down a path that then in 92 moved up to the national headquarters of Mennonite Central Committee to do something at that point that was called the Racism Awareness Project and then became program. I, I love that origin story. I, it makes me think of uh, friends of mine who had chosen intentionally to move to um, uh, poor neighborhoods in Flint, Michigan. Uh, they came from mm. um, privileged white suburban spaces and felt a calling to that sort of space. And after a couple of years, the community elders pulled them aside and said, you're ready to, to leave us now. And they sort of yeah. were, sh- were shocked by that and said, what do you mean? And they said, well, we can't talk to your home communities with the same power that you can. Now that you know our stories, head back home and take our messages mm-hmm. with you. And um, I think we often forget that. I think especially in the sort of um, missional uh, sending calls that, that so many of our traditions offer, we assume we're, we're sent out and we're sent out permanently and, and forget sometimes we're meant to go back and take those stories with us and, yeah. and, um, and bring about some of that change. I, I think that's, uh, that's a wonderful place to start. And um, what, what helped you get through? I think for a lot of us, when we face that crisis moment, we, we often throw our hands up and say, well, I'm done here. I'm not going to wrestle with this. Uh, uh, I'm just going <laughs> to pretend it doesn't exist. Was there something in there that you thought, you know, I, 
I need to be working at this. Uh, I'm not as, what, what was it exactly that, that got you to, to continue to stick with it once you saw it as a weakness and not just sort of present, pretend it didn't exist or gloss over it or something like that? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, I would imagine it was on the one hand, my own perfectionism of mm. having seen something wrong and I wanted to get it right. <laughs> I've, I've been an overachiever and I was like, you know, dang it. I need to get this thing. I need to figure out why I was just totally screwed up here. What's going on? And, you know, as I explore that story, I became aware that my story was in no way unique, just as you've described. Um, yeah. I think what kept me at it, in addition to just sort of an innate stubborn streak, was also the relationships that we then very quickly began to develop in that context of people who invested in me, people like David Billings and Ron Chisholm and Diana Dunn and so many other local folks there in the New Orleans context that were willing to stand by me. And uh, I, I was a, a writer, had been a writer, had an English literature background, a journalism background, and so began trying to explore these ideas through the written word. And that developed and brought me into new relationships as I sought out people to talk with, as I sought out people to help guide me forward. Um, and then those relationships grew deeper, mm. particularly after we moved up to Akron and I, set, I began to seek out partners for doing this work. Uh, I would name sort of out of the gate two of the most important relationships there. One is uh, Dr. Regina Shan Stoltzfus is a professor of peace and justice at Goshen College. She and I now have worked together for across these 30 years. Um, and we counted up the other day, but we co-led two to 300 sessions together on racism. And again, there have been many errors along the way, most of them, the vast majority on my part, but Regina stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And I would say the other person being really important in terms of those long-term relationships, especially coming out of that context, the Mennonite Central Committee at that time, was uh, Dr. James Logan, who's now at Earlham College, um, who was very um, forthright and uncompromising in challenging me, especially when we were uh, first initiating this project. It was envisioned as a two-year close-ended project, as if we could solve the problem of racism in the Mennonite Church <laughs> in that two-year span. And I remember very clearly the conversation where James said, "You know, you, you, how do you have any integrity in even taking this job?" It's this, this an insult to say that we could do anything of any significance in two years. This is a generational issue. It's a generational problem. Um, and we work through it. He continues. We're, we're in, in close contact over the years. And he's a, has been a great supporter. But again, it's stuck with me. That's a relationship that calls me to this work and mm. keeps me grounded in it. And that's continued mm. to be a story across the many years. that It's been the relationships that we've built up and continue to be strong. I, I think it's a, a quote that's often um, drawn back to MLK that, that Sunday mornings are one of the most segregated moments in our country's uh, daily living, that our churches are some of the most homogenous spaces that we occupy. Um, and and I think there are also studies that show that most people like it that way and kind of think that's just fine, which mm -hmm. leads us to sort of, I think, uh, often assume that institutional church 
doesn't really have a race problem. Can you speak a little to that? Is there a challenge when you're talking about institutional racism to just getting people to realize that there is a problem? Oh, absolutely. Although it is the, the, the strategies and context of getting white people, I mean, I would qualify what you said a little bit. I would say that white people think it's not a problem. Hmm. I rarely encounter anyone from the Latinx or Native American or black community inside the context of the Christian community who think there's not a problem. They yeah. know there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I speak to white audiences, the way I've begun to talk about it is when I first started doing this work, I had to invest a lot of energy in convincing white people in the Christian community that racism was not just a function of history, that it was still with us today. I no longer invest energy in that particular conversation to nearly the same extent, largely because of the ubiquity of visual evidence that is just incontrovertible at this point. So the, the, the spread of cell phones with cameras has given us video evidence it just in the small, the, the narrow but um, incredibly damaging circle of the, uh, of the effects of police abuse on African Americans. We could also talk about the Native Americans, the Latinx community. That alone we know is here present. And I, I've simply begun to say that it's an act of willful ignorance if at this point you are making the claim that overt racism is not present with us in the yeah. year 2020. Um, institutional racism, still got to work hard on that. But again, we have a lot of evidence, new studies coming out just in the last number of months here, showing a very close correlation in particular between white evangelicals, uh, embrace of racist attitudes and their identity as a, as a Christian. Um, In his book, White Too Long, Robert Jones notes that the more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. That's incredibly Mm. disturbing. Mm. Um, Just that simple correlation. Uh, But then to begin to think of the church in from an institutional framework is itself a leap because so often, again, particularly in the white evangelical community, Our theology and our worldview is centered on individual salvation rather than corporate and collective salvation. And as a result, both in terms of theological concepts, in terms of personal terminology, and just ways of viewing sin and brokenness in the world, it devolves to an individual dynamic rather than a collective dynamic. And if we're going to talk about racism as an institutional phenomenon, we have to have both a theological understanding and just the conceptual understanding of how brokenness exists in the world and is manifest through institutions. That's a big leap for white evangelicals to take. In fact, my colleagues and I for years now have noted that as we listen to members of the white community talk about racism, if they talk about it at all, they focus on it as an individual phenomenon. So Mm -hmm. have I said a bad 
uh, a racially offensive term? Do I yeah. have friends across racial lines? Am I a member of a, a white nationalist group? But when we, we listen to members of the BIPOC community, that is the black, indigenous, and people of color communities, talk about racism, there we hear the conversation paying attention to those systemic issues. So how is the healthcare system treating yeah. that community? Criminal justice system, transportation, economics, real estate, you name it. So in essence, we see these communities talking past each other with one group mostly talking about racism, if they talk about it at all, in individual terms, and then the BIPOC community talking about it in systemic terms. So all that's to say that it continues to be a bit of a hard sell at points to get the white church to look at issues of institutional racism as a collective phenomenon and not just an individual one. What what makes that so threatening for for those of us who are white uh, Christians? Is it simply that our individual actions are easier for us to control and, and institutional relationships are a little bit more out of our hands? And so... <laughs> We we bristle when when something we might belong to is accused. Uh, is that is that part of the hesitation, or uh, why do we have so much trouble? I guess admitting that our institutional uh, spaces also yeah. carry racism. Yeah, um, I'd say there's a number of reinforcing dynamics that are happening at this at, at the same time. One is I would say white Christians have embrace an identity which says we're good people yeah we don't have problems with things like racism which are ugly nasty terms right anything that would suggest our identities and i think that 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 concept is is really critical for these kind of conversations that would suggest that our identity is supported by racism and in fact participate participates actively in racism and has done so for generations causes us to reevaluate that good person good christian identity um mm. so i think that's a big part of it um i think the other is that there simply is a lack of facility in knowing how to talk about issues of racism research that colleagues and i have my colleagues and I have done, makes it very clear that within the white Christian community, we can trace this. I've actually written an article that, that does this very thing, traces back, let's say, just 60, to, uh, 60 years, the points at which given predominantly white in, uh, denominations talk about themselves, about their own racial identity, it only happens in the midst of crisis uh. when they are being challenged about their racism. It doesn't happen in natural, normal, or frequent way so that there's just not an ease with it. Um, yes. two, co- two colleagues of mine just uh, Monday morning were on a phone call with a group that we're considering working with. And it was just very notable at one point where one of the um, participants on the other side of the conversation, a white woman, just couldn't come up with the words to talk about herself as a white person. And she acknowledged that. She was, yeah. she was very transparent. It was, it was a good conversation. But it's, it's not an unusual conversation for that to be the case because as um, Robert Terry has given a lot of thinking to issues of white identity, notes to be white in America is not to have to think about it. Hmm. Where for members of the BIPOC community, that's not an option. 
racial identity is something that's thought about, dealt with, and responded to 24-7. So that lack of facility of talking about racism, plus the desire to be seen as good, can immediately put up those kind of defenses, which mm-hmm. suggests that we don't want to talk about this because there'd be dragons there if we do. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess if, if all of our experiences uh, are, like you said, in crisis, um, then we become sort of more inclined to be avoiding those crises and those conflict moments. We, we see them as a tension mm-hmm. that we don't want to tackle and, and push them sort of out of sight, out of mind. I don't think we heard a very large Christian voice coming out when, when the um, Trump administration began to talk about banning race and sex-based uh, education from certain public spaces we didn't hear a, a collective Christian voice rise up very quickly to say, uh, how, how dare you, right? And I wonder if it has to do with that anxiety that, um, you know, this is releasing us from having to talk about these things in certain spaces. <laughs> you know, if you ban it, then, then, we, then we don't have to talk about it. Yep. When we are consulting with congregations or other institutions on how predominantly white groups can move towards claiming more of an anti-racist identity and, and space in the world, one of the key transition points we talk about is moving from an environment and culture in which there is a coupling of crisis and, race, and the discussions of racism to a decoupling of that connection so that race and racism is something that is talked about naturally, normally, and frequently on a regular basis. That it's, it's actually correlates to some of the learnings we have from the conflict transformation uh, discipline and practice is that rather than trying to have less conflict as a way to deal with conflict, we should try to have more because mm-hmm. the, the better we're at it, at having conflict, or in this case, having discussions about racism, the less traumatic it becomes. Yeah. And we've seen that in institutions who sort of successfully done that decoupling project. We've seen them move to a place where they're, it just doesn't have the, uh, the, the weight, the fraughtness within their institutional setting. I would imagine, too, for, uh, for people of color to hear uh, white people of faith talk about they don't want to talk about race because it's traumatic for them must just be um, awfully perplexing, right? To have the, the predominantly powerful uh, group be the one admitting that this is too hard because of how painful it is for us <laughs> must just make head yeah. spins, right? Um, um, yeah, perplexing is probably the, the least of it, if not just <laughs> incredibly offended and yeah. aghast that anyone would you know, come up with that perspective. I, I wonder if you can say a word for how you have... Um, created space as a facilitator when you've got this sort of baggage coming along with people to the table how do you even begin conversations when that is the case we 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 pay a lot of attention to this in how we design our training formats and there's a number of key principles that have guided which we have found to be fairly effective ways of addressing issues of racism not only in just predominantly white settings but also in racially integrated session uh, settings. The first is to, is to no longer make claims that we are going to be able to create safe space. We can't do that. 
Um, the best we can do is to ensure that we will respond to issue, to racist comments if they are made in ways that are attacking anyone in the room. But we, we just can't control what people are going to say. So we stop yeah. trying to say this is a safe space. So that's sort of out of the gate principle. The other is that we start with trying to create a common language. So what I talked about earlier of white folks generally talking about racism in individual terms, uh, BIPOC folks talking about racism in collective terms, by by presenting a definition that we found helpful. And we, we work through this definition that brings together issues of um, both uh, racial prejudice with systemic power and, and combines them and we, we unpack that and give the language in the room first. Yeah. Um, we, we also talk about sort of the, um, the, the paradigm shifts that we are trying to help people move through in the midst of a training. And maybe this gets into the weeds more than you want me to, but just this, we, we talk about three significant paradigm shifts, particularly for white participants, that we want to help them move through. The first is to recognize, as we were talking about earlier, that racism isn't just a function of history. It's something that's present with us. If we can get a room to that point, that's significant. The next sort of paradigm shift we're trying to help people get through is to recognize that the purpose of racism is to ensure that white people and white society receive power and privilege. That's the, the sort of intention of the systemic reality. Yeah. If we get people to that point, that gets us to a productive place for conversation. And then what's really productive is that we also want people to recognize that the receipt of power and privilege for white folks shapes us that it has, a, has a, a negative effect, even as we are being given those material benefits, those psychological benefits, those um, social benefits, it still can have debilitating effect on us in, in ways that uh, we need to explore and unpack. Hmm. The, the final thing I'll note is what I've begun often saying at the beginning of sessions is that I no longer try to convince anyone of anything. All I'm trying to do is to make sure that the ideas I'm talking about are understandable. And if yeah. I can get people to the point where they're understanding the ideas, the ideas will do their own work or they won't. It's not going <laughs> to hinge on how um, charismatic I am or not, but it will rather turn on whether people are addressing those ideas that they've understood. And we know that those ideas can be helpful, and if people choose to work with them, that's great. If they, they choose not to, that's I mean that, that's the path that they will then walk down on their own. Um, but we're just not in the business of convincing people of things because that just brings us down in this whole argument pathway, which we haven't found helpful at all. <laughs> yeah, that, that reminds me. There was a... Um there was an article shared recently, I think from the New York Times, a study that someone had done with um, with a group of people, uh, half of whom voted for Clinton during the last presidential election, and half of whom voted for Trump. And after four years of dialogue with each other, they were sort of sad to report that every single person is going to vote the exact same way in the 2020 <laughs> presidential election. That conversation alone was not enough to change anyone's mind or anyone's position or posture. And I think about my own life and I think about the times when I have changed my mind 
are not because someone has won an argument with me or not because of, uh, you know, a one conversation. Uh, it's often because of some kind of lived experience that has shifted my posture uh, to a more empathetic one. I guess I, I say that just to uh, say, I think you're onto something there in, in, in not <laughs> re- relying on <laughs> change to equal success, but to say we're guiding people along a journey here hoping that something will happen in their own lives, which yeah. will bring them to right. <laughs> a right. different posture, yeah. possibly. And, and what we've, we found is that why it's by no means 100% of the time, but if we can give people the language, analysis, and framework to talk about racism in ways that address both those individual and mm. systemic components, we see change happen. That there's been transformative experiences that emerge of that, yeah. particularly because there, it is possible then to have more effective and um, honest conversations across racial lines, where so often it's just about window dressing and making people feel good. And we're, we're just not interested in that at all. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring Ing Podcast. You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing podcast episodes with friends, encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everence. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everence.com. I think a significant portion of the uh audience of Ing Podcast would be uh, church leaders, both clergy, but also people who serve their church in other ways and have a, a hope and a passion that there is a future with the church actively engaging some of these things. I wonder if you have specific messages for people who consider themselves to be church leaders on how they might use those leadership roles uh, in in trying to either begin or further or, um, or, or just have this conversation around um, race in institutionalized yeah. faith spaces. I, mean, I would say that you need to find a way to be deliberate about crafting effective space. It's not enough just to say, I want to have the conversation. Let's get people in a room. Ready, set, go. Um, as we said, there's just a lack of yeah. experience. There's a lack of facilitation. So, so you need good facilitators. Um, you need to be intentional about it. And most critically, you need to be thinking long term. So when, I, when we are consulting mm-hmm. with congregations or denominations or nonprofits, we say to them, you know, when we're done doing our presentation or our audit or our training series with you, we're really not that interested in what you're doing a month from the end of the experience. We're a little bit interested in what you're doing six months out of the gate, but we're mostly interested in what you're doing in one year, one year later, five years later, and 10 years later, because mm. that's where the mm. real transformation happens. And so we try to build into our work yeah. with, these, with organizations like that, scheduled check-ins. Okay, six months out of the gate, if we're going to come in and do an audit with you or we're going to do a consultation, part of our package is we're going to 
uh, set up a time to meet with you six months from now to figure out what's happened and what you need to do to prepare for the next six months. Because we have to be persistent. We have to have that long-term um, uh, perspective or we just we, we, we only do it for sort of a performative um, exercise, not a transformative exercise. And that's what we're trying to do the latter and not the former. Mm. I think the, the, the challenge for those of us who are leaders in the church is that we're longing for the, the most woke program materials or something that we can just swipe our credit card once, hand it to our people and sort of, uh, uh, you know, brush off our hands and say, okay, we, we did what we needed to do. And I, I think that's so crucial to remind ourselves that this is not, this is not a one-time program. This is not an effort that, that will be complete once everyone has done the training. <laughs> this is ongoing work um, that, that takes time. And I, I'm glad that you said that. And Yeah, I had a conversation with someone. I, I get these calls of people who want to you know, consult with me to talk about a particular issue they're facing. This was uh, a high-powered um, international speaker who was recognizing that her audiences were mostly white. And she was pressing me for that, you know, three-step message that would get her to audiences that weren't just white. And I said, there, it, it doesn't exist. You have to go and build the relationships. Yeah. You have to show up in other people's spaces, not just ask them to come to yours. It's about the relationships. It's about <laughs> long-term efforts. And that will make the difference. And she, she was not very happy with me by the time we were done because I wouldn't give her the three <laughs> steps that could be done in a month. I said, it, it doesn't exist. If someone's selling you that, you don't want to buy it because it's it's not a, it's not going to be helpful uh-huh. at all. <laughs> I wonder, Tobin, if there is anything you would um, offer as a word of wisdom um, for people like you who also are white and come from that place of privilege before you consider leading any kind of um, conversation around race, is there a humility or a posture that you need to take before you can enter into leading some of these conversations? Oh, absolutely. So the first day of every class that I teach and almost all the workshops that I give, I say to my audience, and particularly to my students, I said, I, I say, I want you to know that I know I'm white. That is not a point of, con- of confusion. I introduce it, and I introduce it deliberately and non-defensively. And what I say to, in, in the academic setting to my students is I said, there will always be tensions, particularly with me as a white person in my role directing the African American Studies program at the University of Montana, and there should always be tensions there. What I invite you to do is Mm. to enter that tension with me and see what we can discover together. Particularly important are the accountability relationships that I've developed over the years for the work that I do. So to give an example what that actually looks like, this summer as the events were unfolding and the national attention turned to racism in a much more intense way after the murder of George Floyd, I began getting a lot of speaking requests, many of which I was being paid for. And my partner and I decided that we it didn't feel appropriate for us to be benefiting financially from this turn of events. So after consulting with 
uh, BIPOC folks who I've worked with for decades, what we ended up doing was starting a new nonprofit. It's called Widerstand Consulting. And what I that is led by a majority BIPOC, majority female board by our bylaws. They hold me accountable for the work I do in under that umbrella. I do all the work for, pro, uh, for Widerstand Pro Bono. We give uh, by, by mandate of our board at least 50% of our net income, to, we reinvest in other BIPOC-led organizations. So we've already given away about $6,000. Mm, wow. We've earned 40000 Much of that has been invested in developing the nonprofit. We've not, we've not benefited from that ourselves. Um, and that's an attempt to try to you know, model what a white person can do in this work. And I mean, it's just, it's been pretty incredible of what has come out of this. So now we've got a team of about 10 BIPOC folks who are working alongside me doing anti-racism audits. There's some other folks I've worked with for years, again, BIPOC community members who are coming alongside me to do presentations. They're getting paid, absolutely. Um, At this point, I, I am not. But that's part of that need to be accountable for the work that I do as a white person. And I think just always going in and being absolutely transparent about not only my racial identity, but that I have made mistakes and that I have learned from them. Um, I I think there's at points Mm -hmm. this sort Mm -hmm. of performative false humility that I've I've noticed in some white folks working in anti-racism where it's like we have to sort of publicly berate ourselves in order or feeling like that's a a way to establish our voice in the community. I don't think that that's helpful. Um, I think we want to be in those accountability relationships, be, be absolutely transparent about what we are, but also not beat ourselves up. I don't think that's helpful. I think we want to be modeling healthy, sustainable, long-term um, mechanisms for engaging in this work because otherwise it's just not going to happen. And white people need to step up and be responsible for addressing racism in our own communities. That's a principle that has been long established in the anti-racism field. And the story you told, the story I told yeah. about myself would be sort of anecdotes of what that can look like. Given the sort of weightiness of this kind of work, what keeps you going? Is there, are there glimmers of hope that you find along the way that, that fuel your continued efforts in this, in this area? I think uh, for many people, they get started down the path of something difficult and think, whoa, I am in way over my head and turn around and just sort of stop. But you have stuck at this for a length of time. You must have some <laughs> something that keeps you going yeah. in this journey. I recently wrote an essay re- reflecting on the idea of hope in the work of Tanahasi Coates, important new, relatively new voice in race relations, um, author of Between the World and Me, reflecting on his approach to hope and Vincent Harding's approach to hope, who was a a activist in the civil rights movement was for a short period of time a Mennonite pastor went on to be a professor of theology at the school of theology I think Iliff's Iliff Seminary in um, Colorado at any rate they have very different approaches to hope where Coates talks about essentially this um, nihilistic approach to hope that you, you hope isn't helpful all that counts is the struggle itself Harding, however, articulates an idea of hope, of hope that is authentic hope 
born out of struggle, birthed out of the collective uh, work against racism over time. I think I, I lean more towards Harding's articulation of hope. I see that, again, I... I end up sounding redundant, but in the relationships that I, I've been privileged to be part of across racial lines and with other white allies for these 30 years of working on this, um, I know those folks are with me. I'll give you an example. Um, last year, on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, I got involved in what ended up being a national controversy over a writing contest that a committee I was chairing at the university had put in place inviting our entire campus community to reflect on and respond to Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. Turns out that the four winners of that contest were, the contest were four white women. Um, we actually didn't end up having any students of color submitting essays. And it was a, it was a, an integrated committee, long story short, against my advice, the communications department at the university sent out an announcement featuring these four white women, which, among other things, sort of cut off the, the breadth of our Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations, which it included an African-American speaker, a graduate of, of my program, the African-American Studies program, a dynamic young woman, Michelle Cox, great, this great speech, it's high profile on campus, but what ends up entering the Facebook theme, uh, stream is this picture of these four white women. That just set off this huge um, backlash, <laughs> uh, you know, and I can understand where it came from, but within hours of it being posted on the university's Facebook feed, it had gotten, it, it had, as they said, gone viral. Well, the communication staff then approached me in a panic. What do we do? Well, I knew that that community, that, that staff, didn't have a lot of experience talking about racism. So I, I sort of gulped and said, okay, I'm going to have to step into this and respond to the situation, which I then did. And it ended up, Oh, it showed up in the Wall Street Journal, um, several higher ed at USA Today. I mean, it was written up everywhere. At any rate, it also meant that I was getting a constant stream of attacking phone calls and emails that it was just I, I know how to deal with attacks I get from white nationalists. I dealt with them for years up to and including death threats. It was a much more difficult thing to get them from the so-called progressive community. But I tell the story only to note that the way I got through that relatively unscathed is I had folks I could reach out to and say, you know, this is what's going on. Mm. Help me figure out how. What yeah. do I do here? And I got wonderful counsel. We had friends locally, friends of color, who said, "Hey, we're gonna um, step." See, I, I get choked up uh, talking about this, but um, hmm. we're gonna check your phone calls for you for a month because I was getting just these horribly angry calls, and let you know what's going on. And hmm. we're gonna check hmm. your email for a month, um, so you don't have to be sort of wow. dealing with that. And then I had. A colleague over in Seattle, another white man who I've worked with for years, He's a, for, he does anti-racism educating organizing, Rick Dirksen. I was able to just call and debrief with him through the tears and everything else and figure out if I'd done anything wrong and what I need to do differently. I was a very – and I had, again, colleagues like Regina Shan Stoltzfus who was, I was able to debrief with and, and get her 
you know, checking in. Um, that got me through that. It was very, very hard. It was one of the most difficult, demanding um, crises I've been through. But we're able to do it because of the community and the relationships. Couldn't have done it on my own. Of course, my partner, my wife of 34 years was absolutely essential to that. My sons um, are, are real strong supporters. But uh, it was only because of those relationships that I got through that particular event and um, that I'm able to stay at this stuff on a day-to-day basis. I'm curious, uh, and maybe you just touched on it with that incredible story, but I'm wondering if you have a vision for what uh, institutionalized church looks like in the future. Where where do you hope that we are heading? Um, what is a what does a community look like that's that's doing this well, and and what are the values sort of at the core of that? Yeah, yeah. So we have this tool we use when we're doing audits with organizations that looks for looks towards what a transformed church looks like. Um, mm. And we have like these six different areas. I won't sort of go through all of them, but basically what, what we talk about is that this is a church which not only looks different in terms of its composition, you know, who is in the room and, and in how is power being shared in that room, but is collectively equipping themselves and then through that members of the congregations that they're leading and the denominations they're a part of to be about the business of dismantling racism wherever those congregants find themselves so that we could actually think of a church where rather than having it be more likely that the more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. Perhaps we can be at a point down the road where the least racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. We're not there yet. But I think that equipping process is what the church should be about. Um, Rather than backing away from that problem, moving towards it. There's this great... um, story that Daniel Berrigan talks about when he was on set for the filming of the movie The Mission, in which he played a Jesuit priest. The basic scenario is that this indigenous tribe up in the rainforests of South America is being attacked, and there is a pacifist priest, and there is a, a military priest, if you will. Berrigan said Jeremy Irons was playing the pacifist uh, priest, and when they were first filming it, the last scene was going to be Irons in this little chapel with his followers sitting there as they were attacked. But Berrigan says, no, nonviolence is always about moving toward the conflict, not away from it. I think there's a parallel here for the work of dismantling racism in the church. Mm. We collectively need to be equipping ourselves to move towards the conflict, not away from it, because the story of the church has too long been on the side of empire, on the side of colonialism, on the side of segregation. We need to be about the business of moving towards a future where we have to move through the issue being very clear about what has happened previously and not backing away from that history, but moving towards a church where we have come to terms with that history of racism, moving towards the conflict and equipping ourselves to be effective partners in the struggle rather than people trying to obfuscate, run from, or pretend that the struggle doesn't even exist. Oh, I love that. That's such a good final word. And 
and a word of hope, I guess, for uh, what a future might look like. I know this is hard work. This is challenging work, but I'm so glad there are people like you who have a passion for it. Thank you, Tobin, for being a part of our conversation here today. Thank you for the work that you are doing. Um, and and thank you, I think, for sharing uh, authentically and vulnerably about just um, all that is involved in this kind of work as we um, work to fight against white supremacy, as we work to um, challenge our institutions and to hopefully create a more holistic and loving um, Christ-centered church moving forward. Oh, for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. It's a privilege. I really enjoy the conversation. You asked great questions. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support Ing Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of Ing Podcast. Today's episode was also supported by Mosaic Mennonite Conference, a community of congregations and nonprofit ministries committed to living like Jesus together in our broken and beautiful world. Find out more at mosaicmennonites.org. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on Ink Podcast? Let us know by emailing theink at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on Ink Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menno Media. Today's show was produced by me, Ben Wyden. Ink Podcast is a production of Menno Media, a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.